You're listening to a podcast from Civil Wars in History. This online conference was a collaboration between the Centre for War Studies at University College Dublin and the Society for the History of War. The conference was supported by the UCD School of History and UCD Humanities Institute and took place on the 10th and 11th of September 2021. Papers and panels covered a range of theme topics from the early modern period to the 20th century. Three of the conference keynote lectures are now available as podcasts and videos via UCD Humanities Institute and on historyhub.ie. In this episode, Civil and Uncivil Wars in the Early Modern Period, a keynote lecture by Professor Penny Roberts from the University of Warwick and Dr. David J. Appleby from the University of Nottingham. The speakers were introduced by Professor Judith Pullman from Leiden University. It's um, a great pleasure then to um, introduce two distinguished uh, speakers, uh, Penny Roberts and uh, David Appleby, who are uh, giving a joint paper. Um, Penny is Professor of um, Early Modern History and currently also Vice Provost and Chair of the Arts Faculty at Warwick. So uh, I don't know how you tore yourself away from all those duties, but great that, uh, to have you here. Um, and um, her the focus of her um, um, uh, work um, is are the uh, French wars of uh, religion. Um, you and I have talked about that um, over many years. Um, she started the career with a fine study of the wars in Troyes and moved on steadily to consider bigger issues such as the languages and rituals of peacemaking and um, uh, last year published an exciting essay about notions of truth in uh, civil war uh, contexts. Um, David is a uh, lecturer in early modern British history at the University of Nottingham. He's an expert on the British Civil Wars with a focus on the experiences of soldiers, both during and after the wars. He's currently participating in an AHRC-funded project on civil war petitioning that focuses on welfare, conflict and memory. And I think those three themes are in fact running uh, through um, his um, work. So I'm looking forward enormously to their uh, paper that is entitled Civil and Uncivil Wars in the Early Modern Period. The floor is all yours. Thank you. Um, I, I want to say a few words, obviously, to, to start with, since the historians have now arrived um, about uh, Status' uh, really stimulating presentation and the extent to which, certainly as a historian, I find those models helpful as a way of thinking about common aspects at the same time as as well, of course, as identifying those very specific differences. And um, historians are a difficult lot, as you've you've suggested. We like to disagree. I think without if we don't disagree, then our discipline is dead, really. Um, And um, because, you know, uh, and and uh, certainly our students get very frustrated by the fact that we can't give them the truth in a sense that, you know, there are always going to be um, differences of opinion about all of these areas, and that's what makes it stimulating. Um, I think um, also, I mean, the fact that there are two of us presenting, that was actually my idea, that because that, that kind of historical uh, conservatism about feeling that you can talk about things in a very broad way outside of your own specialist area, although I've written in, in, in those areas, that's um, uh, still very much uh, the case that um, we we do tend to operate in our uh, particular camps, um, and what I'm going to try and do though is is I hope whilst talking about some of the specifics, also bring up some of the common themes, which I hope will have some appeal across 
periodization and disciplines um, as we've begun, begun to think about it. Um, and I, I like that, that uh, quote about war makes states. I wonder if war shapes states is another way of, of looking at it. And um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that in a, in a moment. Um, so thanks very much also to the organisers for in, inviting us to come and speak and uh, to think about um, uh, civil war in a certainly an early modern framework. Um, as I mentioned, um, historians tend to get um, both unhappy about the fact that there's a kind of, well, it's in the, it's so far back in the past, we can't really talk about it um, from a political science point of view, but also when political scientists, for instance, engage with historical examples and we feel that they oversimplify and, and aren't nuancing it enough. And so we're frustrated in both directions, but I think it's fruitful for us to, to talk across our disciplines and to, and to think about how they, what they have in common. So I'll begin. Peace strengthens the state, foreign war weakens it, civil war ruins it completely. There is nothing so dangerous for a country than civil war, nor more profitable than peace. I would always prefer a tyranny during a peace than to be at the mercy of a civil war. Civil wars are like a fatal illness. If the king or the republic punish their divided subjects or citizens, it would be like cutting off their limbs instead of seeking a cure. Like a candle burning from both ends is quickly consumed, so too through civil war a state is ruined and lost. Laments about the destructive and self-defeating nature of civil war have a long pedigree, of course, from the philosophers of the classical world, who 16th century humanists such as those quoted here were keen to cite, through the medieval theorists and officials confronted by conflicts such as the Hundred Years' War, which can also be seen as largely a French civil war, with the English king acting as a rebellious lord within the kingdom. Shorn of the justification of fighting the foreigner, legitimacy resides in other narratives about the defence of the nation, and which side represents the true citizen or true regime or true ideology. Thus, such distaste can be set aside for a pursuit of the greater good, despite the prospect of a divided people and a bloody and uncertain outcome. Having been given the brief of discussing early modern civil wars in a comparative way, while setting the particular political and religious contexts of the period aside for the moment, I want to begin by considering some of the common characteristics of civil war in any place and time as a basis, hopefully, for some of our discussion. I've also found it useful as a starting point, um, uh, Stasis's definition that civil war, if he still agrees with it, is an armed combat taking place within the boundaries of a recognised sovereign unit between organised entities subject to a common authority at the outset of the hostilities. What I'm thinking primarily of with regard to civil wars is what distinguishes them from other forms of armed conflict. Um, much of what might be, I think, intensely personal, as neighbour is pitted against neighbour, families are divided and the usual community bonds broken down and fragmented, sometimes irretrievably. For civil wars are largely uncivil affairs that reinforce and exacerbate the causes of conflict and thus make their impact more prolonged, especially psychologically in the memory of the vanquished. Indeed, what is particularly striking, I think, is the aftermath of civil war. After foreign wars, combatants can withdraw and hostility be appeased. 
lives and communities, as well as the infrastructure, damaged properties can rapidly be rebuilt. Following civil wars, former enemies must try to live together and move on from earlier points of contention. Simmering resentments and a desire for retribution have to be purged and assuaged. And in order to co coexist in peace, often some form of conflict resolution and perhaps transitional justice must be sought so as to prevent hostilities being resumed. David Appleby will be addressing some of these issues in his presentation, focusing on the 17th century English civil wars. My own area of particular expertise, as uh, Judith mentioned, is the French civil wars of the 16th century, commonly known as the wars of religion, which lasted on and off, depending how you uh, time it, and I'll be uh, mentioning that later, for over 35 years, and have a reputation as probably the most bloody of the conflicts that tore Europe apart in the wake of the Protestant Reformation and look pretty conventional from a kind of civil war uh, type model. The reputation for bloodiness is largely due to um, notorious episodes such as the St. Bartholomew's Day massacres of 1572, during which thousands of Huguenots, as French Protestants were known, were killed in Paris and other major French cities. This was very much an urban war in many ways, and that were described in lurid detail in contemporary accounts. And indeed it's said, that our modern day usage of the term massacre dates uh, from France in this period. Alongside the usual pitched battles and siege warfare, the assassination in cold blood of prominent leaders on both sides of the confessional divide, including two kings, was another notable feature of the troubles in France as they were known. However, it can be argued that other conflicts of the early modern period um, also bore significant witness to atrocities committed against or within communities. As in France, these were civil wars exacerbated by religious division, resulting in outbursts of violence. For example, the so-called Spanish Fury in Antwerp and other military brutality in the Netherlands in the 1570s and 1580s, or the treatment of Protestant settlers in Ireland in the 1640s. Since the 16th century, English troops have been responsible for major atrocities against the Irish, forming the bedrock of resentment to the devastating violence of the 17th century, comparable to that wrought by troops fighting in the Thirty Years' War uh, in the empire. I think one thing that might distinguish, and I haven't really developed this thought very fully, and it may be perhaps just of interest to specialists, but uh, is whether the, um, the contemporary horror about the brutality of the violence in France was as much to do with the extent to which you know, foreigners couldn't be blamed, that this was very much a French on French affair, uh, although I'll say something about the sort of international dimensions. Um, it, it was the French nobility pretty much divided down the middle. It was also when they did try to say, well, it's the Calvinists where it's, we're talking about foreign influences. In fact, the Calvin, Calvinist church was largely the French reformed church in exile. So again, it's very much a sort of French on French affair. Religious division tested and eroded existing and long-standing solidarities on the one hand. Um, on the one hand, intercommunal violence was often confined and small scale caused by disputes over processions, the use of churches and bells, sites of worship and burial, iconoclasm and other devotional slights. I think the religious aspects are very clear. Yet sometimes it was significant and widespread, as in the case of the German Peasants' War, the Dutch Revolt, and the French religious wars. It could also prove deadly when relations broke down. And the impact of uh, civil war 
within previously harmonious and stable communities provides a clear demonstration of Anton Bloch's claim that the fiercest struggles often take place between individuals, groups, and communities that differ very little. And this has been reinforced um, in the recent historiography of the French wars. Whereas it has traditionally been argued in historiography uh, by Natalie Davis and Denis Crusay, among others, that murderers were enabled to carry out their crimes in France through dehumanization of the victims, very much following an anthropological approach. Recent work on the French wars, for instance, by Jérémy Fouard on the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre and the perpetrators, particularly in Paris, has highlighted that perpetrator and victim, in fact, often knew each other very well. Rather than random killings, they were deliberately targeted, sought out and murdered in cold blood. The conflict was thus highly personal as well as visceral. Massacres and other atrocities which characterised these conflicts were the brutal outcome of deep-seated hatreds, and the perpetrators could often benefit financially as well from the spoils of confiscation. So from where I began, while civil war is rhetorically viewed as a disaster for those involved and to be avoided at all costs, that clearly does not prevent its occurrence or its resulting in tangible benefits for some. The ruinous effects of the religious wars are not just seen in terms of the human impact of confessional division, but also its detrimental effects on the social and economic welfare of the people, of course. The physical damage to buildings and fortifications was evident and proved both demoralizing and costly for afflicted communities. It's a challenge from this distance and from the sources that survive to quantify the global impact of the deprivations and depredations suffered, including the number of casualties among the civilian as well as combatant population, or the number of homes destroyed. And I think it's worth noting perhaps the much larger demographic of uh, France in this period as compared to the equivalent of the, of the UK, where they're, they're comparable now. We're talking about some 16 million in France as, as compared to 5 million in uh, what is now the UK. Um, the figure which seems to have, have stagnated and, and probably declined during the wars. Many towns reported increased demands on their resources amid a shortage of funds as the cost of the wars escalated. At Amiens in 1588, for example, the municipal authorities referred to the ruin and impoverishment of the people after several years of poor harvests, plague and heavy taxation, among other um, misfortunes and, and consequences of the war, of course. Protestant numbers in particular were reduced, it's estimated by half between 1560 and 1600, more by conversion and exile, it seems, than by violence, although the latter violence clearly had a significant effect on encouraging the former, that is conversion and exile. Clearly communities suffered no suffered to differing extents at different times and in different ways. And this really accorded to where the fighting was going on uh, during different periods of the, of the wars, uh, which were concentrated in different uh, geographical areas of France. And they could be subject to attack through siege or internal coup, but few would have been spared altogether. Complaints to the authorities included the expense of supporting garrisons, as well as their terrorising of the civilian population through extortion or assault, including rape, the pillaging of property and the destruction of crops, as well as the disruption to commerce and trade. Merchants and other travellers were seized on the roads and ransomed, peasants fled in fear when troops passing through threatened them with violence, chateaus and other strategic locations were captured and billeted. In addition, the threat of invasion from abroad due to internal disunity seemed very real, especially in those areas that saw the passage of foreign mercenaries 
employed by, on both sides during the wars. Above all, any danger to the local community was extrapolated to indicate a much broader menace to the well-being, prosperity and security of the French kingdom. It's perhaps worth pausing here to acknowledge the extent to which civil wars are rarely combined within a state's borders, and it picks up on, on some of the points made earlier, or rather that those borders are frequently permeated by foreign intervention of one sort or another, which can often prolong the conflict. Recent work on the French religious wars has focused on this transnational aspect, which in their case was once again divided along confessional lines. Thus, German and Dutch Protestant princes and the English crown were actively involved in supporting the Huguenots on one side and Catholic powers, principally the Spanish crown, but also Scottish Catholics under Queen Mary Stuart, sustained their co-religionists on the other. A much cited quotation from the French Chancellor uh, Michel de l'Hôpital on the eve of the conflict states, an Englishman and a Frenchman of the same faith are closer in friendship than two Frenchmen from the same city, subject to the same Lord who have different faiths. Religious difference can deter the subject from obeying his king and can produce rebellion. And it's important to note that this came as a lament from an advocate of peace and coexistence between the faiths, not somebody who thought actually the Protestants needed to be uh, removed. And again, this reinforces the, the, that sense of this internal disunity, which was, which was so uh, destabilizing. The continuing existence of a substantial religious minority within the kingdom, estimated to be some 10% of the population at its height, meant that disagreements could never be fully resolved. Of course, this difficulty of reconciling opposing sides within a civil war context is far from unusual. Whilst all parties might seek peace, its terms often prove controversial and divisive, making conflicts more bitter and long drawn out. Thus such circumstances made and make civil wars especially hard to bring to a satisfactory conclusion for both sides. But given the widespread misery and interpersonal violence brought about by such conflicts, how in such circumstances might any resolution be achieved? I note that a number of speakers will be addressing the role of law and justice as well as peacemaking or rather peacekeeping in civil wars. These areas overlapped before, during and after the religious wars in France, as the Crown sought to prevent and then to bring an end to the Troubles. From the early 1560s on, peace commissioners, many of whom were royal judges, were sent out to the provinces to enforce the terms of a series of so-called edicts of pacification. They were assisted by military governors, much as peacekeepers are protected by troops today, and often generating similar tensions between the two. They sought to negotiate their way through complex disputes to try and bring about local resolution, often with only temporary success before open warfare resumed. People were also able to submit petitions directly to the King's Council, which was soon overwhelmed by the demands made and royal legislation had to be regularly reissued and updated to accommodate the increasing complexity of the practical implementation of the peace edicts. Peacemaking during the French religious wars was therefore a fraught, protracted and frustrating process as is surely true of the negotiations to end many, if not all, civil wars. The difficulty of resolving conflicts, resistance to attempts at mediation between fiercely opposed groups, and the propensity of a return to violence, all undermine the most patient and determined efforts to institute peace. In many localities, a state of war or official peace was not easily distinguishable. As the Venetian ambassador remarked in 1580, France was in its usual state. They treat for peace and continue the war. Even after 1598, when the Edict of Nantes, the celebrated Edict of Nantes, was supposed to mark the end of the conflict, 
has to be said, it's been celebrated more since than it was at the time. Um, and it was indeed largely an extended reiteration of the edicts that preceded it. The same sorts of tensions remained even after this point, leading some historians to argue that the conflict did not end until the military defeat and political emasculation of the Huguenots in, 15, in 1629, sorry, or even until Louis XIV's revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which effectively expelled them in 1685. Most intractable issues involved the persistence of both long-standing grudges and more recent offences. Without moving on from these, the authorities were well aware that the peace had little chance of success. The, mem the memory of civil war is always one of the most divisive of sticking points. As a result, the French crown made increasing efforts to counsel and legislate the suppression of past hatreds in its policy of oubliance, oblivion or forgetting, as once again outlined in the peace edicts. But just how effectively in such circumstances can the slate be wiped clean? How can people be persuaded to forget the wrongs done to them by their neighbours? And how can either side be convinced that they have received justice for the crimes perpetrated against them? In the criminal courts of early modern France, cases were brought to deal with atrocities that lay outside the acts of war definition to allow for justice for the victims. As early as the 1570s, special chambers were set up within the sovereign courts, the Parlement, which offered Protestants the opportunity to have cases tried by their co-religionists. As the fighting subsided at the end of the century, formal appeals and petitions for justice in the courts increased, and we're only beginning to see um, through research, such as that recent, uh, recent work by Tom Hamilton, the scale of this. And he, he has shown the length to which judges in France were prepared to go following the wars to bring perpetrators to justice and the determination of those who brought such cases to see them through. It does demonstrate that justice could be sought and served despite the evident injustices that were overlooked in order to bring the conflict to an end. So by way of brief conclusion, these are just some of the issues which recent work in my own field have explored, which I hope will feed into our discussions and allow for comparative consideration across both time and place. And as Judith mentioned, I've written much more extensively on peacemaking and violence, including sexual violence in France. So I'll be happy to further discuss these or any other issues and across the sort of early modern spectrum more broadly. But first, Dave is going to look at the case of the English civil wars. Thanks. So, English Civil War, British Civil Wars, English Revolution, wars in the Three Kingdoms. Historians remain deeply divided over the name of this conflict, never mind its causes, periodicity, geographical scope and nature. And many see the conflict in England as part of a wider British crisis. As Penny has said, um, civil wars are rarely confined within national borders. England was too divided to respond coherently to either Scottish Covenanters or Irish Confederates. Both sides in England solicited support from Scotland, whilst King Charles, to the chagrin of many Royalists, sought help from Catholic leaders in Ireland and continental Europe. And meanwhile, the victorious parliamentarians proved unable to resolve their own ideological divisions, let alone reunite this nation. Some have resisted this wider approach in favour of remaining focused on England. And they concede that England was divided, but they argue that its demographic, military and economic hegemony within the British archipelago was restored after Parliament's victory. They admit that events in Scotland and Ireland occasionally impinged on their English civil war, but imply, sometimes insist, 
that the Celtic Wars were a sideshow. The notion of a restrained, genteel civil war fits neatly into Anglo-centric narratives. It, it would have made national reconciliation easier, facilitating a swift resumption of English hegemony. Now, this picture of restraint contrasts strongly with historiography elsewhere. Penny has noted that historians of early modern France portrayed society there as inherently violent. Michael Sorocru has challenged received wisdom that the wars in Ireland were marked by unrelenting savagery. But the idea that the English were restrained within their own borders in their own civil war is so per pervasive that it's influenced the historiography even of those attuned to a wider British history. So we read that awareness of common nationhood was a restraining bond, um, that the civil war in England was not so very uncivilized, I'm quoting here, because the number of men in arms killed in cold blood was very limited. On the face of it, the statistics appear to support these perceptions. 3% of the population is estimated to have died in England and Wales, as opposed to 6% in Scotland, and 15 to 20% at least in Ireland. The 3% is still substantial when you translate it into bodies. It's proportionately higher than British losses in the First World War. Now, such bloodshed had been feared, predicted by commentators before 1642. Sir Edmund Verney, the Charles's um, Knight Marshal, was appalled by the prospect. He wanted his royal master to compromise. Verney's sons, one royalist, the other parliamentarian, continued to treat one another with civility. Munn wrote to Ralph, I quote, it grieves my heart to think that my father already and I who so dearly love and esteem you should be banned in consequence because of our duty to our king to be your enemy. Now, no document better validates the claim that, I quote, ties of friendship and, um, and kinship held savagery back. Nothing validates this more than Sir William Waller's letter to his friend and foe, Sir Ralph Hopton, in which he described the Civil War famously as this war without an enemy. Sure, having read lurid reports of bloodshed in Europe and Ireland, few English gentlemen were eager to inflict similar suffering on their own nation, particularly their own localities. Royalists and parliamentarians in several counties made joint plans to maintain peace within their localities. But this irenicism quickly turned to hatred for those considered responsible for the war. Royalists considered parliamentarians as rebels, undeserving of military courtesies. And so parliamentarian officers captured early in the conflict were consequently badly maltreated. Several were tried for treason in order that they could be legally hanged, drawn and courted. They were only reprieved when Parliament threatened to retaliate. And later in the war, Parliament ordered that any Irish soldier taken prisoner in England be executed, only to back down when Prince Rupert began to hang an equal number of his prisoners. So it seems clear from these cases that restraint was primarily motivated by fear of retaliation 
rather than anything more noble. We know that families were bitterly divided. Colonel Thomas Cook inherited his son for taking commission in the Royalist Army. And when Francis Cook was killed at Colchester in 1648, Thomas refused to bury him. And he also refused to help his destitute daughter-in-law and his grandchildren. On the Royalist side, ideological purity became a legal requirement after the monarchy was restored in 1660. Royalist legislation was loosely applied in some counties, but others enforced it rigorously. Elizabeth Tresham applied for a pension in 1668, and she was a destitute widow with a child. Her father, brother and husband had all been killed in Royalist service. Elizabeth had impeccable references, including an endorsement from the Lord Treasurer. But nevertheless, Northamptonshire justices refused to award her a pension until and unless she could prove that her late husband had not begun the war in Parliament's army, despite the fact that he definitely died in the Royalist army. Widows like Elizabeth were often stating the truth when pleading that their families were likely to starve. This was particularly true for the middling and poorer sorts of people. Indeed, the notion of a civilized civil war begins to unravel as soon as we start delving into the experiences of the middling and poorer sorts. Now it's true that compensation claims submitted to Parliament's Accounts Committee contain hardly any allegations of violence. But these were claims against Parliament's own troops, so some fudging might be expected. And Anne Hughes, the specialist on this, wonders whether such evasion reflects a deeper reluctance to confront horrors directly. In comparable European documents, she says, brutality was often presented as something that happened elsewhere, perpetuated by foreigners. And we do get that narrative coming up quite a lot in the civil wars. Now, already discussed um, in the first paper, the middling and poorer sort have left us few independent records. The vast majority of applicants for war relief from which we get copious amounts of information, the vast majority had their petitions written for them. So such documents probably reflect the anxieties of the scribe as much as the petitioner. And one of the biggest anxieties of literate social superiors was the overturning of the social structure something which an uncivil civil war made possible. So I think a civil civil war in England is feasible only if we consider the social elite. And the elite could certainly be very courteous to one another. It's a matter of record that when Sir Thomas Fairfax's wife was captured, the chivalrous Marquis of Newcastle provided a carriage and escort to convey her back to her husband. And similarly, Mary Townley is said to have met Oliver Cromwell as she wandered through the carnage at Marston Moor in search of her dead royalist husband. Seeing that she was determined to persist in her search, Cromwell detailed a troop of cavalry to escort her around the, around the battlefield. Women of lower social status than Mary would never have received that kind of courtesy. Now, interestingly, accounts of sexual violence correspond closely with records elsewhere in Europe. Historians of the conflicts in France and Ireland have been puzzled by the relative 
absence of specific allegations of sexual violence, particularly given the numerous generic horror narratives circulating in print. Most allegations in England were made by London journalists, parliamentarians, against royalist troops, particularly Frenchmen. The royalists responded with allegations against unnamed parliamentarian soldiers. The desire to frame the English civil wars as civilized has encouraged historians to imply that most of these allegations can be discounted and that rape was a rare occurrence. But these vague accusations might well reflect the prevailing attitudes of the time. According to one legal manual of the time, rape was an accusation easily to, easily to be made and hard to be proved. It, it was widely believed that conception was proof of consent. Married women couldn't sue a stranger for rape without the permission of their husbands. And this was rarely forthcoming, given that the husbands would lose face. As for the unmarried, prosecutions were statistically less successful if the victim was under 18 or a servant. Unmarried mothers in peacetime, this is, unmarried mothers of low social status could expect to be sent to a house of correction. Desperate women concealing stillbirths were often prosecuted for infanticide and under law considered guilty unless they could prove themselves innocent. So I think that the stigma of rape and bastardy was hardwired into English communities well before the Civil War, and it's not surprising that silence was the default response. So these generic allegations made during the Civil Wars should, of course, be treated with caution, but they shouldn't be ignored. The same caution also applies to lurid accounts of atrocities. Uh, James Temple's history of the Irish Rebellion is a case in point. But again, although accounts of massacres grew in the telling, particularly in print, they shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. Bolton in 1644 was probably the biggest massacre of soldiers and civilians on English soil. Anything up to 1,200 parliamentarian defenders and townsfolk killed, plus around 600 royalist attackers. Colonel Rigby, the parliamentarian commander, alleged that he only lost 200 men, um, whilst Generals Leven, Manchester and Fairfax urged the Committee of Both Kingdoms to ignore vulgar reports of a massacre. But Rigby had fled early in the fight. Leven, Manchester and Fairfax had failed to send troops as requested. So all had a reason to downplay reports of a slaughter, even though the Royalists admitted that it had occurred. Almost half the combat deaths in England and Wales involved incidents of less than 200 men. So aside from Bolton, Leicester, Shelford, most publicised atrocities involved the murder of a handful of prisoners. Murder, uh, the war in England was marked by an increasing, increasing trickle of localised murders rather than large-scale massacres like Dungans Hill, Nocnanos, Drogheda, Wexford or Philippe. But a recent history of Marston Moore has suggested that the huge imbalance in casualties in several battles probably hides many cold-blooded murders, as well as the wounded dispatched by plunderers. Many atrocities in England had an ethnical xenophobic element involving Irish, Scottish and French victims in the main. Most incidents do appear to have had an element of retaliation as some victims had previously been aggressors. The Royalists claim they'd been provoked at Bolton by defenders hanging an Irish soldier over the barricades. 
New Model Army troopers who massacred camp followers at Naseby. These were said to be Irish at the time. They may have been Welsh. We now know at least one. Elizabeth Burgess was English. Um, the troopers slashed the faces of other women as well, who were likely to have been English. Um, this they claimed to have done in retaliation for the maltreatment of their own camp followers in Cornwall and to avenge civilians slaughtered in Leicester. And of course, as in Europe, cold-blooded killing was permissible under accepted rules of war at the time, for example, when a garrison surrendered at mercy. But such niceties were lost on traumatised civilians. Much of civilians' woes came from unsupervised soldiers and deserters prowling around the countryside. Two soldiers robbed and murdered John Harvey as he was returning home from Utoxeter Market in 1645, and there were almost certainly many such victims during the English Civil Wars. Walstrow Riplock considered the soldiers on his own side brutes who knew no difference between friend and foe and plundered indiscriminately. Arthur Goodwin, a colonel, admitted to his son-in-law, I quote, we are all the most abominable plunderers as bad as Prince Rupert. I am ashamed to look an honest man in the face. Awareness of common nationhood didn't encourage restraint. Rather, it encouraged, as we've heard in Penny's paper, a bitter sense of betrayal. And that rhetoric of hatred hardened after the public execution of the king. After the restoration, of the monarchy, the promotion of the royalist martyr cult of Charles of blessed memory reinforced the view that rebellion wasn't simply criminal, but sinful. As late as 1682, an old royalist petitioning magistrates in Northamptonshire likened his neighbor's failure to honor the king to the sin of witchcraft. James Howell predicted at the time that the deep stains these wars will leave behind all the water of the seven Trent or Thames cannot wash away. We're now finding, not least through the petitions of maimed soldiers, widows and orphans, that Howe was right. For all the chivalry displayed by the likes of Verney, Waller and Newcastle, for the vast majority of the common people, the English civil wars were anything but civil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Civil Wars in History. This online conference was a collaboration between the Centre for War Studies at University College Dublin and the Society for the History of War. The conference was supported by UCD School of History and UCD Humanities Institute and took place on the 10th and 11th of September 2021. Three of the conference keynote lectures are now available as podcasts and videos via UCD Humanities Institute and on historyhub.ie.